You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue our series focusing on the three W's of a healthy disciple. We say here at Ascend that a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ worships Christ walks with him and works for him. And so over the last few weeks, we have set this up through the gospel of Mark. We've set this up through our study of women deacons, and we've set it up last week through worship. Now, why do I say that? It's because this concept is really flowing out of every page of scripture because every page of scripture points us to whom? To Christ. That's exactly right. And so last week, we determined that as we look at Scripture, worship as a concept are the attitudes and expressions of what we value. As we discussed last week, that that worship will take place in really all areas of our life, whether it become, uh, is expressed in the sports activities that we participate in, the entertainment that we choose, the calendar events that we place on our calendars. Those are all expression, expressions of what we value. But we talked last week that Jesus is most interested in our Christian worship. And Christian worship are the disciplines that are expected from God for all of his people. Now what we'll learn today is that walking with Christ actually flows out of Christian worship. It actually is in the same family of Christian worship. And so really walk is not distinct from worship. They flow hand in hand. But what I want you to see this morning is that walking is the resource for our Christian worship. Let me set that up by explaining that the big picture of the New Testament goes a little something like this. The Gospels of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are given to us by the authors to display the ministry and the message of Jesus. But listen to this, even more importantly, to show how Jesus is the epicenter of redemptive history. I I love that because oftentimes we think that the Gospels are simply like a history lesson of Jesus' life. Much like a history lesson in school and all the students said boo, right? Just kidding. But in American history, what we typically do is we unpack the details of our past and provide details of battles, of politicians, of movements, and we answer a lot of the questions that our human heart longs for. The Gospels are not a history like that. The Gospels do provide factual details of Jesus' life. They provide snapshots of his preaching, but they're really intended to weave together a theological understanding of how historical Jesus connects to all of redemptive history and how all of redemptive history focuses on Jesus. Then you have the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is reality TV. It's reality TV because what it does is it gives us a window into the students of the greatest rabbi who ever lived, the the greatest teacher who ever, ever lived, and they struggle to apply what Jesus taught them. Isn't this often what happens in class? Teachers teach a very clear and robust lesson, and then the exam comes out. 
And the teacher finds out that either the students didn't pay attention or maybe I wasn't as clear as I thought I was or maybe it's a combination of both. And we often see in the classroom that students struggle to follow the instruction of their teacher. And in this particular case, that's what acts is. Is the students struggling to follow the instruction of their teacher. And, and then when we get to the epistles and the letters from Romans to Revelation, we begin to see how the apostles are explaining and drilling down into the Christian life. And, and one of the words that they use a lot of times to describe the Christian life is walk. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, we'll see in this passage. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And the apostles are explaining to us that the Christian life is about a journey. It's about a pattern. It's about consistency. It's about character. And that's what this concept of walk looks like. That's what is expected of us, but we have to understand how do we do that, and that's what we're highlighting this morning. So I hope you've arrived at Ephesians. We're going to specifically look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and if you don't have a Bible, would you, would you just honor me by reaching in the seats in front of you, grabbing one of those Bibles and turning to page 977? Because here's what I want you to do through that exercise. Beloved, listen, you came in here today with some sort of awareness of this book that we're studying. For some of you, you've spent many years with this book. You, You love this book. You understand the value of this book. You might even be very familiar with this book. For others, you're aware that Christians usually talk about the Bible. You're aware that the Bible is the best selling book of all time. You're aware conceptually of this book. But what I want to model to you this morning as you look at each phrase, each word, each line that we unpack is that you can understand it. And if you understand it, you will see very clearly the God who created you. You will see the God that loves you, as we have sung about this morning. You'll see what is expected of you as a human being from your creator and how you can have relationship with him and what that relationship looks like. And so study this book. Understand this book. Apply this book. And we model it every Sunday by our study. Let me read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and then we'll unpack it. I, therefore, Paul writes, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, 
the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to see the big idea. Look at your notes. The walk of the Christian life is resourced for exactly what we need to do it. Number one, remember your identity. Remember your identity. Paul says in verse 1, therefore. Remember, when we see that word in the Bible, we want to ask the question, what is it therefore? And most typically, it draws the attention of the reader to what has preceded it. The authors of the New Testament did not say therefore in a vacuum. They said therefore in a context. And so what Paul is doing is he's drawing the attention of the reader back to what he has said up to this point. And what he has been teaching us up to this point in the book of Ephesians is our identity. Would you turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1? It says, And you... We're dead in trespasses and sins. As human beings, we are dead spiritually. That is our condition. That is our nature. That is our state. And he says, in which you once walked. See, there's that word again. We were characterized by what follows. We demonstrated patterns for what follows. This is who we are as revealed in the way that we think, speak, and live. What does that look like? Well, we were following the course of this world, the world system. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, but is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And what specifically, Paul, does this look like? How do we express this deadness? Verse 3, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the breast of mankind. Beloved, listen, before our identity is what we do for a living, before our identity is our relationship status, before our identity is in the neighborhood that we live or in the possessions that we have, before any of those identities, which are identities, the most important identity is are you dead or alive spiritually? And Paul says every human being begins at conception in the category of dead spiritually. This is very important for us to understand. This is very important for us to begin as we consider our identity. But what's most important are the next two words that follow in verse 4. Would you circle them, underline them if they are not already? Would you box them? Would you highlight them? Because the the, the bad news of verses 1 through 3 is eclipsed by the good news, and the good news isn't salvation yet. The good news is God. 
but God. See, listen, beloved, salvation does not begin with a story of us. It begins with the reality of God. And so here it says, but God. And then it describes his character. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. And what did that love look like? Would would you look back at chapter 1 and verse 4? This God who is gracious, who is merciful, who is loving, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What what did he choose? He, He chose a people that would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Beloved, listen, this is not just a theological debate This is timeless truth. And this is foundational to our identity. Because listen, our identity apart from Christ is dead. And dead people can't do a whole lot that pertains to life, can they? So we stretch our minds and move off the focus of our own lives, of our own souls. And we turn our attention to the God of the universe who, before the foundation of the world, decided that a people out of the whole expanse of humanity would be pulled out of that by his grace and for his glory. He chose them and predestined them to be holy and blameless. And what does that look like? Look back at chapter 2. Even when we... We're dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is an incredible identity. Beloved, those who have been saved have not done this on their own accord. It is not an amount of religion that you can fulfill. It is not a decision that you can make. It is not an awareness that you achieve on your own. It is God and his sovereign mercy. And he invades our wills. He invades our desires, and he saves us by grace through our faith. Look down at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. See, Paul says it is through your faith. It is through my faith. It is required of us that we express our faith in God. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a response required of you. And there's a response required of me. But it's as though Paul anticipates our humanity because he wants us to understand, listen, even your faith is not your own doing. Even your decision is not your own doing. Don't forget God in this whole process. It is God and his sovereign grace and mercy that even gives you the faith that you exercise. Now, why is that important? Because after you come to Christ, this expands your understanding of God. God is not just somebody who wound up creation and let it go and then just is responding as we react and as we act. No, no, no. God ordains. He predestines. He orchestrates. This is the God that we serve. And so once we express our faith, we need to remember that, hey, even our faith was not from us. It is from God. But he's not done. He says in verse 10, 4, we 
are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Now, what does this mean? Beloved, listen, this is how works and faith come hand in hand. This is how they are together, not opposites. Because listen, beloved, when we express our faith, which is required for salvation, works are not required for salvation. Faith is. And when we do that, we are changed from the inside out. We have a new nature that is amazing, that is staggering, that is impossible, horizontally speaking. And so what, God, uh, the God of the universe, what do you do then to demonstrate to everyone who is watching? What do you do, God, that allows me to see evidence of this change that was brought about by the faith that you granted me, that I exercise toward you? Works is the answer. The change of our thinking, the change of our speaking, the change of our behavior, that we do not work now according to our desires, that we are not enslaved to sin anymore, that we actually view our slavery to God as the greatest freedom. That is the expression of salvation. And so when people see that, when we see that in our own lives, then what happens, beloved, is we put on display the Creator's majestic handiwork. This is our identity. And beloved, don't you understand that identity should impact our behavior? I've had a lot of occupations in my life, and they have run a a large span from golf course maintenance to substitute teacher to frontline ferry at McDonald's. But, but I've never had an occupation that has impacted conversations quite like being a pastor. It's funny. Usually there are one of two reactions on a plane when they say, well, what do you do for a living? All of a sudden they put their headphones on and the conversation stops or we talk for the rest of the trip. Now listen, the same Jeff as a McDonald's frontline person, should be the same Jeff as a pastor. But there's also the reality that I understand that as an identity of a pastor, there are certain expectations of me, there are certain actions expected of me, like preaching this morning. I was helping a friend get logged into the Wi-Fi while I took a break during the announcement time. And my identity moved me from being IT Jeff to now actually standing up in front of you and preaching. Beloved, the identity that we actually have influences our actions. Single men can interact with other women in a way that a married man can't, right? Students will respond to a teacher or should respond to a teacher in a different way than they do when there is an adult who is simply their friend. Employers, employees. Citizens, government. Beloved, don't you see that identity influences and impacts action? And so we are reminded from this one word of our identity as human beings that is most important. Are you dead or are you alive? Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. I want to read through this quickly that summarizes the therefore. God is holy 
And apart from his intervention, we willfully pursue our own desires, justly placing us under his wrath. But grace, grace is given. And God provides a solution, the death of his perfect and only beloved son as a payment for sins of those who by grace, not effort, by faith surrender their sin nature in repentance and submit to Jesus as Lord. And those who do so will be saved from the wrath of God and their own bondage to sin. And the, sor- the source and this miraculous transformation removes us from the slavery to sin, freeing us to live in worshipful obedience, putting on display the majestic new creation of Almighty God. Is this your identity? So, beloved, when you, when you head out these doors and you go to the tent and you see these opportunities that we give you to walk with Christ, it begins foundationally with this. Remember your identity. Number two, remember your mission. And I know you're sitting here looking at your clocks. And you're saying you just spent all of this time on one word. I did, but it's foundational. And so we're going to rapidly run through the rest of the passage. Paul is going to present four missions of holiness. Would you write these down? Four missions of holiness that will help you understand the next few verses. And what is holiness? Holiness is being set apart. Holiness is distinction. Holiness means that I look different from the world, that I look different now than I did when I was dead in my trespasses and sins. So four missions of holiness. The first one is personal holiness. And that's what he explains here as he runs through these different characteristics that are expected in our walk. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we are expected to look a certain way personally. Humility. It's Philippians 2, the mind of Christ. Gentleness. This is not just in my actions. It's also in my attitudes Beloved, listen, this is not just a personality. It's so much more than that. And he transitions with the phrase, with patience. What does patience mean? It just means to endure. No. It means to put up with. No. Patience is a settled joy in the character of God regardless of circumstances. Patience is a settled joy in the character of God regardless of our circumstances. doesn't mean we're not sad in bad circumstances. doesn't mean we don't have fear in bad circumstances. But what it does mean is that we are anchored in a settled joy that is settled in the character of God no matter what our circumstances is. And so that's important when we look at the next phrase. With patience, we bear with one another in love. Listen, the, the, the Christian church is filled with cow pies. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Solomon reminds us of that. The house of worship, watch your step. And friends, some of that cow pie is our own sin. Some of our cow pies is our own indifference. Some of our cow pies is our own lack of understanding. But there are a lot of cow pies in this building. 
There are a lot of cow pies in the Christian faith. And so when we interact with each other in small groups or in the lobby, or, or when you interact with the leadership and sometimes you're like, ooh, I didn't like that. That's the church. And so we know going into it, what we're getting into. The church is not some Hallmark Channel, beautiful picture of human beings. The church is a hospital that directs us to the ultimate medic, who is Jesus Christ. It doesn't excuse our sins, and we're constantly being renewed. We're constantly sharpening one another, but you just got to know what you're getting into when you walk into this place. And so with patience, we need to bear up with one another in love. So the second holiness is relational holiness. Now, let me just summarize what Paul's saying here. He's saying that our interactions with one another need to have the gospel overriding self. And so, beloved, when we interact with each other, we do so with gospel lenses. We, we do so in an effort to grow the person that we're interacting with and ourselves in the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is becoming more like Jesus Christ. And so, friend, when you interact with one another, that does not mean we turn a blind eye to sin. It does not mean that offenses don't sometimes require payment and punishment. But what it does mean is that our interactions with one another are pointing each other toward progress in the gospel. This is our mission. It's personal holiness. It's relational holiness. But then it's also, number three, centered holiness, focused holiness. Did you see all the ones that I read? Verse four, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, listen, the the, the mission of a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be centered on the things of God. On the character of God, on his word, on his truth, on his righteousness. And we're constantly battling what the world is saying. We're constantly battling our own fleshly desires. And so Paul is reminding us that there is a constitution and a standard by which we live. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. The point of this and all of these ones is that preference, tradition, feeling, all of these are centered on a constitution, on a standard that is defined by God and overrules us. That's what all these ones mean. And so, beloved, listen, this is our mission. Our mission is to be centered. And the world doesn't do that, does it? Well, the world does. They're centered on self. And so this mission allows us as Christ followers to look different, to be set apart, to have people say, why are you the way that you are? Most of them will say, y'all are idiots. Most of them will say, you just don't get it. Pursue the, the allurements of the world, the sparkle of the gold and the diamonds, and you're not enamored by that. Your decisions aren't driven by that. What is wrong with you, the world says. Jesus says, no. Your mission is about the kingdom, and it's about the king. Which brings us to the fourth mission that Paul unpacks here, and that is hero holiness. Hero holiness. 
So who is our hero? Well, he's going to talk about pastors and apostles. And is that our heroes? Are our heroes the Christianity today, man or woman of the year? Are our heroes those who write the most books, those who seem to be the most impactful through their quantitative success for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who is our hero? Well, Paul unpacks that. Verse 8, therefore, it says, when he ascended, when he descended, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. He's talking there about bringing to fulfillment redemptive history. Oh, I wish I had more time to unpack this. I don't. But what Paul is saying here is our hero must should, and we delight to say, be Jesus. You know, I love the Halloween time of the year. I don't like what Halloween stands for, although we can get back into the history and see that there's actually a theological precedent for it. But one of the things I love about the Halloween festivities is that kids dress up. And everywhere from Darth Vader to Pat Mahomes, the kids become something else, don't they? And you see these little kids walking down the streets going, which those of you who have not seen Star Wars, that's a perfect rendition of Darth Vader. (laughs) You get these little three-year-olds that will never set foot on a sports field, and they're all doing this. Why? Because they've got the hair of Pat Mahomes, and they're wearing number 15. And beloved, that's what Paul is saying here. So we should be reflecting our hero, Jesus Christ. We should be looking like him. We should be talking like him. We should be thinking like him so that when people see us, they see Christ. And so that's our mission. We talk about a whole lot of missions. Our missions are to reach the, the, the corners of the globe for the gospel. Yes, but our mission is Christ. And listen, y'all can do that mission in your cubicle. You can do that mission in your homes. And you could do that mission in Romania and in Africa and in Mexico. Beloved, my point is not to minimize international missions. My point is to deputize us that no matter what context we are, we can be on mission. And the mission is simple. It is to follow, reflect, and attract people to our hero, Jesus. That's our mission. We have a personal mission, a relational mission, a centered mission, and a hero mission. Remember your mission. Number three, remember your tools. Remember your tools. And and beloved, I have to confess to you, I have preached verses 11 through 16 at least four times. I stopped searching after I found four sermon manuscripts. Now, why do I do that? It's because I love it. It's because I think that if you're going to look at any passage of Scripture, these verses center in on the purpose of local church ministry better than any other passage. So I'm not going to unpack it at a level or a depth that I typically do. I'm going to focus on how it relates to our walk. 
So what I love is verse 7 says that as we have our mission, that we have actually been given the tools that we need to accomplish it. He's given us gifts. Your gifts that you have, spiritually speaking, were specifically given to you by our hero Christ. So the gifts aren't something that you've achieved for yourself or you've accomplished for yourself. So to the degree that you value Christ, you should be using them, and it's your privilege. And he's given us tools to help that. First of all, verse 11, he's given us leader roles. And I've shared many times that as you look at the New Testament, I think it's very clear that apostles and prophets were specifically for that transitionary period. But we see very clearly today that there are evangelists, that there are shepherd teachers. Those are one office, one role put together. And what is the point? The point is that God has equipped us with guides, with teachers, with protectors, with shepherds, because he knew that we would need it. Our house had a desperate need, and that was the stairs going out to our patio were in disrepair. We have a young, small group with several during the year, moms who were pregnant, and we would just, I'd have to get out there and be like, don't touch the rails. And so I knew there was something I had to do. I knew the mission was fix the stairs. There's, there's just one important problem, and that is that I am on the struggle bus when it comes to something even as simple as hanging pictures. So, so the need and the mission was like, I'm set up for failure. God provided. He provided a member of our small group who is actually, he and his wife are apprentices this year. And he is a superintendent for a local construction company. Thank you, Jesus. And so we had him draw out what the plan was. Didn't make sense to me. It made sense to my wife. She signed off on it, so I'm good. We ordered all the materials, and the day came. It was, you know, that Saturday morning when he's like, hey, the sun comes up at 6, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> the day came, and I, and I went to my garage, and I pulled out my D-wall drill. <laughs> I'm going to contribute. I pulled out my, my grandpa's World War II toolbox with World War II hardware. <laughs> And then my friend pulled up. You know, construction people just drive those trucks that, like you can hear them a mile away. And he starts getting out his DeWalt tools, reciprocating straw, straw, see there, I'm not a construction guy, saws, jigsaws, DeWalt circular saws. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And he starts to put everything out. And he starts to get to work. And he starts to show me what he's doing. And suffice it to say, we have an amazingly crafted stair, and it is beautiful. Now, what I want you to see is that somebody taught him how to do all those things. Somebody gave him the skills to be able to do it. Somebody gave him a wife who said it was okay to get all of those tools. <laughs> But you know what? The mission was accomplished. I didn't injure myself. And I learned something along the way. See, that's what Jesus understood. Is he understood, listen, we are all on the struggle bus when it comes to the mission of the gospel, aren't we? 
How many of you can say, oh, I'm so sure that God is grateful I'm on his team? No, we walk into this room, we open this book, we we bow our heads in prayer, and we are reminded, if we're focused on the right things, how desperate we are for a guide. And the ultimate guide is Jesus. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not setting myself up as the ultimate guide, but what I am saying is that God has given people, and he's given roles in the church to say, hey, listen, these individuals are going to serve as guides, as protectors, as they do so imitating the ultimate guide and protector Jesus Christ. That's the only value of these leaders. But it's not just that, is it? He also gives us the tools of the furnace and factory. Would you write that down? The furnace and the factory. I would just submit to you that the furnace includes the activities of the church. The factories are us living it out. The the furnace of the tools is the activities of the church, but the, the, the factory is us living it out. And so that's actually included in what follows. Look at verse 12. They equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? Well, many people would begin to say, well, you know what? That's what you're going to talk about next week, pastor. And I would imagine you're going to give us all of the areas in the church that have needs, all of the activities where there are needs, and you're going to try to guilt us into filling those holes. But I want you to understand that the work of ministry as defined by the New Testament is a quote that I hope the team will be able to put up on the screen, and that is the work of ministry is that which contributes to discipleship. It's that which contributes to discipleship. And so it includes the activities of the church. It includes right now, beloved, listen, right now in rooms outside of this room, there's discipleship taking place for your kids. There's discipleship taking place for junior helpers as they see adults model discipleship in what they're doing. There's discipleship taking place by our security team out there that are working to make sure that you are protected and that distractions are minimized. But there's also discipleship taking place in the cubicle. There's discipleship taking place in the kitchen at dinner time. There's discipleship opportunities. If you're a police officer, as you're doing your responsibilities, your thankless responsibilities in the community. Moms, there's discipleship. Dads, there's discipleship. My point is, is the work of the ministry is anything that pertains to discipleship. And what is discipleship? Seeing lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. That's the work of ministry. But Jesus understood that we need help. And this Lone Ranger Christianity was never God's design. This kind of sitting in a room like video gamers and listening to podcasts and studying the Bible on your own and not interacting with other human beings or being in these like non-local church Bible studies and that's my Christian life. No! It's not what the New Testament designs. He knows that we need help. And so he equips the saints in the context of a local church through leaders, through brothers and sisters in Christ. But he also gives us a blueprint, doesn't he? And that's found 
in verse 13, until we keep doing all of this until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, beloved, the, the drawing on the napkin, all of the measurements are all Christ. So the day that you can look in the mirror of Scripture, not, not, not your own mirror, but the mirror of Scripture, and you can say, Jesus, me, we think, we speak, and we live exactly the same, then you can stop. I'm not there. I would imagine all of you would agree in your own lives. So who is the Jesus that we are measuring ourselves against? Well, it's not social Jesus. It's not political Jesus. It's not a Jesus of our own definitions. It's the Jesus of Scripture and not just the four books of the Gospels. It's Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. To the new Jerusalem, there will be no more temple there because Christ is there. It is everything in between. So, beloved, remember your tools. These are the tools that the Christ of the church has equipped us with to accomplish the mission. Which brings us to number four. Realize, realize your metrics. Realize your metrics. What is a metric? A metric is a unit of measurement. How do we measure progress in the mission of the gospel? It's valuable to remember, beloved, listen to this, that the Bible is not a user manual. Okay, listen, please, everybody who might be tempted to be distracted right now, everyone who might have heavy eyelids, would you please wake up for just a moment? Because this will help you understand this book and what is it intended to be. It is not intended to be a user manual. I explained to my girls as I was making toast that that toaster came with a user manual. And it told me every specific detail for how to use that device properly, what it would produce if something went wrong, the steps to troubleshoot it in great detail. The Bible is not intended to be a user manual. It's intended, write this down, to be a theological manual. It gives us the framework to live out our lives. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, but it doesn't tell you what social media to sign up for. It doesn't tell you whether or not to even do social media. It doesn't get into that level of detail for the Christian life, but it gives us a theological framework to process social media, to to, to process the various accounts and subscriptions that are out there. And so the metrics here are not attendance. They're not areas of service. That does not mean those things are not important. Hear me on that. But it allows us to approach the importance of those details with a theological framework. And that's what Paul unpacks in these final verses. What are the metrics? Well, let's go through them very quickly. Verse 14, we are kept stable. We are not blown around by false teaching or derailed by the world. Verse 15, you and I personally contribute to discipleship and receive discipleship from others. 
Verse 16, you individually and us as a local church are to look more and more like Christ of Scripture instead of him looking more and more like our definitions and our expectations. That's the metric. And so how does that practically look? Well, it requires you and I to ask, are you measuring up to these metrics? And am I? And are we? So what are they practically? Let's just finish by looking at these very quickly. Number one, yeah, I'm just going to tell you. You can write down whatever summarizes it well for you. But as the professing church, as the church that says we are a biblical church, as we engage with the trends that are coming out in Christianity, just look back on the last few decades. We had emergent church. We had seeker church. We had the Jesus calling. We had the prayer of Jabez. As these trends come out, are you responding to them with biblical discernment? Listen, beloved, I'm going to get real and personal here for just a moment. When it it comes to topics that you are passionate about, how much of them are based on tradition or authors and teachers that you follow rather than you wrestling with Genesis to Revelation and coming to a biblically defensible position? I've heard testimonies in small group how brothers and sisters in Christ have become passionate against somebody, but as I hear about the arguments and as I hear about the debates, I can say, oh, that comes from this teacher or that comes from this denomination rather than the individual wrestling with it themselves. And so, beloved, the tool that God has given you is this environment and this community where the ball is put on the tee. We give you biblical tools. We give you a leadership that is a leadership of theologians. We give you resources out on the bookshelf. We study curriculum during the small group lesson or season. We we give curriculum to your kids that is gospel-centered to give you the tools that you need to wrestle with it, to work it out so that... When the trends come, and they will come, the podcasts are coming hot and heavy, that you're not just responding denominationally. Nothing wrong with denominations, but don't hide behind denominations. So that you're not responding with MacArthur or Sproul or Piper. Nothing wrong with those men, but don't hide behind them. Because when you're equipped... When you are doing the work of the ministry, when you are using your tools, when you are on mission, you will not be blown by the wind. You will not be tossed by the waves. The second one that Paul says is speaking the truth in love. Listen, beloved, this is every Christian's responsibility. Are you, as a family member of Ascend Church, contributing to the discipleship of others? And are you receiving discipleship from others? Again, we put the ball on the tee, small group. That is the greatest opportunity. Is it perfect? No. But it cultivates these tools. It cultivates this mission. Kids ministry, all of these activities. Again, the activities are not the end game. The end game is the application of the mission. But that's what the local church is. We are giving you DeWalt circular saws 
You need to learn how to use them and use them. Are you speaking the truth in love? You're going to have opportunities to engage with some of these activities out under the tent. But then number three, we always remember that the standard is the Christ of Scripture. Beloved, that's what we're about. As you begin to discover Ascend Church, as you consider this being your church home, if you've been here for a while, I just need you to know my heart and the heart of our elders, and that is that we are striving to look like Christ. And I can tell you this, there will never come a day in my lifetime or any of our lifetimes when we arrive. And so we will continue to make decisions. We will continue to come up with innovations. We will continue to to recheck some of the decisions that we've made in the past, but the grid is always Christ of Scripture. Scripture. 